You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, let's continue this incredible exercise of waking up Carl's brain after travelling around Australia. And one of my uh, favourite people to do that is our beloved office manager, Emily Sims, who is joining us here on The Renegade Economist for the first time. So, Emily, welcome to the show. With an equally sleepy brain. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> For uh, some of us in the doomosphere, uh, I must have been uh, I must have been driving thousands of kilometres at the time when it was announced that Australia is halfway to a, a recession. My God, one quarter of negative GDP growth. What does this mean? I have no idea, but um, the front page of the uh, Herald Sun wasn't particularly nice today. What was it? Grand slums, homeless people, blighting the city. Yes. I mean, more symptoms. More symptoms we can to read, the deeper cause. You know, we can read the numbers on the pages and we can also just look into the landscape and see that people are really struggling in a lot of quarters. I know. I was uh, shocked uh, speaking to a, a full-time worker last week who was telling me just how hard it is to make the day-to-day pay rate when they're paying rent of some $480 a week. Mm. And you you think, uh, gee whiz, uh, that old statement that rent is a secret tax, the wealthy charge the poor, uh, also locks out so many people from a right to a place on this planet. Absolutely. And you know, it's causing a lot of tension in more broadly. I was just thinking, as you were saying that, I'm paying something like 60% of my income um, in housing costs. But in Footscray recently, we've had four prominent local businesses that are doing very well being vandalized because of this tension between this perceived, you know, wave of gentrification and people being pushed out and losing their their foothold in 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 society um it's causing you know in this case actual broken glass and and uh costs it seems like the homeless encampment uh in front of flinders street station is almost a protest camp uh, against this uh, uh, scourge of uh, housing affordability. And, of course, the Herald Sun's only talking about the, the effects and not looking at the deep causes to this. And mm. uh, that's what we specialise uh, here on The Renegade Economist, is discussing how we share this incredible bounty of the earth. And before we get into uh, some of the more philosophical-type discussions, uh, of which Emily is a master at... <laughs> Uh, let's delve into this gentrification problem because uh, it's continuing to put pressure on society in so many ways. And what do you see as the real cause of that? You know, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because ultimately urban revitalization and urban renewal are symptoms of our success. They're symptoms of the wealth that we're generating in many ways. The difficulty is who is benefiting and who is displaced by that process and you know there's hundreds and hundreds of articles in all sorts of fields examining the who's and the why's and the what's etc but what's clear is that there's um, a sense of wealth being generated and people who are creating that wealth not being able to access it or not receiving a share of it and being in fact displaced and it all of course comes down to the fact that 
the distribution of wealth occurs in space. And we always talk about the economy as though location matters because that's at the end of the day, that's what gentrification is really um, demonstrates is that the effects of wealth uh, production in the economy and wealth creation are uh, fall unevenly in space. Yeah, I agree with that. But for me, the, 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 the concern for us uh, is the rate of change and how that is accelerated by certain incentives within society. Absolutely. The rate of change in an area is accelerated by a number of, you can accelerate a number of things. Public investment in that space, um, you know, population growth, the unlocking of parcels of land to enable housing to be built. Just a keen community that gets together and creates a product and, or a service that people want to become a part of. I mean, Fitzroy is a great example in Melbourne where the arts community created a, a culture and, and a product that people wanted to get in on. But those people, many of them lived in St Kilda in the early 90s. They moved to uh, Collingwood, to, to Fitzroy, and, and have been pushed out of there up into Brunswick and beyond Brunswick into Thornbury, Northcote, beyond Northcote, Thornbury, into Preston. And now I'm even hearing a reservoir is uh, the, the latest place where, you know, the creative crew uh, have been pushed to because of this entrance fee to life on earth, the incredible rents we pay. Yes, I mean, look, that's absolutely true. Uh, Reservoir, the new cool place to be if you're a muso particularly. It's not a surprise to me that the latent industrial areas in Reservoir and Broadmeadows are being taken up for recording spaces and studios because they're actually exactly the kind of space that artists um, and musicians need. Actually, Kate Shaw at the University of Melbourne has done some interesting research mapping where subcultural producers get pushed to um, and why. And she makes the very strong case um, that sub independent subcultural producers, musos, etc., um, they, feed, they feed the creative city, they, f- they fuel the cultural economy in a way that increases those values and unfortunately then they are displaced and that is not very fair. Artists set the scene, speculators wipe it clean. (laughs) That's a good line. (laughs) That was uh, part of a campaign uh, we ran probably seven, eight years ago. We ran the I Want to Live Here Film Festival Mm. and that was uh, part of the poster with uh, a beautiful beige paint job um, going over the top of some ever-funky graffiti. Mm. And uh, that's what we continue to see when uh, these tax incentives are uh, spread forth for the the property sector. And I've I've, uh, upped my list of 20 advantages for property investors to now 26 separate advantages they have over someone trying to buy a home. It is disgusting because it's the great contradiction. You push the artists out who are creating the wealth in the economy or contributing to the culture that, you know, there's this often disreputed thesis about the creative class in as generators of wealth in a city but i think it, i think the thesis feels true because um at some level we know that artists are creating places where people want to live that they're they're they're, they're bringing money into the economy but then of course that contradiction that enables property investment to um become more lucrative than actually producing, you know, 
um, art or music or owning a venue in which those those activities happen uh, kills the thing. You know, it's killing the goose that lays the golden egg, essentially. It's a great contradiction. It is, and that's part of the problem when we only have, you know, one artistic hotspot in the city. And uh, I'd like to think that if we were to... remove these tax incentives and replace it with our uh, primary policy objective of uh, a a reformed and improved land tax, uh, there would be more artistic spaces because the thing artists are really chasing is cheap rent so they've got more time to be artists. There's less need to be a cog in the wheel of the the capitalist machine. Isn't that what we all want though? (laughs) Well, it is, and and that's what is uh, so enticing about this George's message. And uh, I wanted us to really um, delve into that because we often talk about you know some of these more technical issues of unearned incomes, economic rents, deadweight costs, compliance costs, all these sort of things. But uh, behind that is a whole set of value systems that uh, is quite appealing. And Emily, you, you ha- always have some interesting takes on that when we consider that what we're discussing is neither capitalist nor socialist, but a synthesis of those two uh, systems. I think um, the fundamental insight of Georgist philosophy is that Individual rights in property are not sustainable unless the collective rights to natural resources are upheld and respected. That individual rights in property, when extended too far, um, denying the capacity of individuals to access the land and natural resources that they need to essentially earn a living to survive on, that dispossession from what we sometimes refer to as our earth rights or rights to the natural world, that dispossession really disempowers us and limits our ability to really enjoy our right in our, in our, private, our own private property, our right to ourselves. We're forced into, you know, sell our labour or we are essentially beholden to the landlord or those who are able to extract rent from us. So the great insight of George's, I think, was that you cannot simply uphold rights in private property. You have to also uphold our collective right to the commons. Because if we don't have that, we end up with protest camps during uh, uh, big international events like the Australian Open. And... uh, you know, all sorts of uh, drug use and, you know, byproducts of, of social malaise. So, well, in a way, the greater the wealth gap is, in, if I can put into words what you're saying, uh, the more we need to spend on uh, cleaning up those problems, whether that be through welfare, uh, extra health expenditures and the like. I think uh, it creates the great unwashed in many ways, this dis- dispossession from what should be shared equally and again coming back to that dreadful front page spread on the homeless blight in the centre of Melbourne on the Herald Sun today that's symptomatic of the dispossession of people from housing homelessness is dispossession of people from housing so 
George's philosophy and economics identifies as the structural problem underneath all of that is that this monopolization, this ex- this granting of an exclusive right to the benefits that accrue to land and natural resources. So I think there's five key ideas that I think are really interesting concepts when thinking through, looking around the world and thinking through a lot of issues, not just about social inequality, um, but also around you know, competition and the way that we use natural resources, whether that's efficient or not efficient. And I think we need to go back to that discussion that we're having about gentrification because one of the key insights of Georgist economics is this role of location and the importance of location to determining how wealth is produced and distributed in the economy. So if you own some land and all of a sudden there was a new train station built near you or oil started popping up out of the ground, there's an incredible locational advantage you have over someone who who's owning property next to the quarry. Well, <laughs> exactly. And there's natural advantages, like you're never going to replicate the view at Rose Bay. Sydney's got a beautiful deep harbour, oil is not found everywhere you know certain places have key natural advantages that the right to use and extract is is something that we grant as a society but also it's the way that agglomeration economies kind of work in a free market the um, value of any particular location in a city is determined by the market the bid rent curve so we can say that Due to the collective pursuits of everybody in an economy, the ability for people to specialise because of the presence of other producers and consumers, great pools of um, labour, etc., what in the um, economic geography literature is referred to as an agglomeration economy. Land value is determined by this bid-rent curve, what somebody is willing to pay for a space in the inner city is going to be higher than they're willing to pay on the outskirts because of a range of infrastructural benefits, the ability to be close to other suppliers, labour, you know, all sorts of other things. So that geographical economic imperative is really important to get your head around, I think, if you want to understand how wealth is distributed unevenly or otherwise. And so in a way we're saying we need this earth rights democracy because we all need an economic right to the value of the earth. It's not enough to just be able to vote. You need to be able to understand this locational advantage and instead of getting upset about it, to use the tax system to equalise those opportunities. Exactly. To say, okay, well, the landscape upon which economic wealth is produced is uneven, but that doesn't need mean that the consequences... Um, socially and economically for individuals should be so uneven, we can equalise that. And we start from the basic principle that everybody who is born to this planet has an equal share in the natural spoils and resources of this planet. But I would add to that also that every person born onto this planet has an equal responsibility to steward those resources and to ensure that they're available for the next generation. Ooh, good point. But that's the basic fundamental principle in Georgist philosophy is that 
things that are collectively or socially produced or are gifts from providence. And, you know, Henry George was writing at the end of the 19th century and he was very much a man of his time in a lot of ways. So as a good Christian man, everything he saw around him that was he could describe as a gift from God, he was able to say everybody has an equal right to that. Everyone has the equal right from their creator to the, to the things that they need to survive. And he has, you know, God has provided those things. Um, and it is only other men, using the parlance of the time, it's only other men that prevent people, other men, from enjoying the fruits of their labour upon nature's gifts. But we can extend that further, and we do in George's philosophy, talk about the commons not simply as God's gifts, but all the socially or community-created wealth that arise from commons, such as the digital commons. Or, or a city is a commons in many ways. If you think about what we was, I was saying about agglomeration, the spillover effects that occur in a city um, you know, they're greater than the sum of their parts, but they really belong to nobody. They're, they're produced by everybody and belong to nobody, you know? Everybody should have a share. So what was your second, second major point? My second major point in my five key ideas of Georgia's economic philosophy is that we can draw a distinction between unearned and earned income. So a very important tenet of classical liberal philosophy coming from Locke is the idea that everybody has a right to their own person And if you labour upon something, if you put your effort into something or if you build something, then there is a natural right to that thing that that is conferred upon you. Um, And this is where rights in private property really come from. Um, But what Georgist philosophy says is that, well... There is earned income, and yes, that's something that people should uh, maintain a private right to. But then there's this unearned income, this natural increase in value that are the returns to location, natural resources, or commons. The stuff that we all need, but doesn't really belong to anybody. But as a society, we grant exclusive rights to use you know, so um, the legal system confers uh, the right to uh, a miner, for example, if they have the lease, to extract a certain amount of, you know, our commonwealth out of the ground, and we we grant them that right. But the idea that okay, the best way to explain it is through land, because I think it's an example that everybody everybody is very familiar with the mechanics of gentrification and the mechanics of land value um so you know if you're the example you gave before if the government the public let's say decides that it would be very advantageous to put a train line through a particular part of a city because you know it'll increase labor mobility and all sorts of other good things the benefit of that flows to the the value of the surrounding property and that incremental rise in the locational value 
can be captured by the person who has exclusive rights to use that space. And, and this is this inverse relationship we have uh, with capitalism and our labour in that we're taxed for working but these uh, community created ground rents, the, this unearned income is uh, privately appropriated. So we've got it all upside down. Well that's what George is saying he, and, and that's, that's where he identified a lot of this social inequality being derived from and this dispossession is that we labour as a society and we create private goods but we also create goods that are held in common but through the legal system and through our extension of rights in private property too far he argued we enable privatization of socially created wealth Mm, that's it and that's the point i'd love 3cr listeners to really dwell on this week uh, how this, uh, this twisted language, this twisted economic system has got us into this place where now we barely trust economic policymakers anymore because they just keep telling us to do the same, same type of things. And, you know, record low interest rates, uh, 40-year mortgages, it's all leading to higher and higher debts, which are land-related, which is to do with uh, this enclosure of the commons. Enclosure this invisible enclosure of the commons now of, uh, of what was the natural funding base for government. And there's no reason why that can't be reversed. I mean, there's all sorts of low-hanging fruit in terms of reversing that. I was recently at a forum where we were discussing these matters um, and I think that's the other key insight in Georgist economics is that it is possible to have a socially, environmentally and economically sustainable form of capitalism insofar as we're very, very clear about what is earned and what is unearned income and what can be and should be appropriated by the individual and what should be and can be appropriated by society. And I think that with the malaise of a lot of ideas on the left around, you know, re-socialising all sorts of income. You know, we, all, we often um, have arguments with uh, people who would like to see wealth taxes and higher rates of income tax and... Um, inheritance tax. Inheritance tax, death taxes, all of these things. Well, I think there's a lack of nuance in our understanding of where that wealth is actually derived from. And personally, for me, I, I, I think that George has this incredible marriage of individualism and cooperativism, which kind of is very fair. You can definitely see how it is that when you know we, we dull bludgers the ultimate um, uh, fodder straw man for the right, we have this sense that the appropriation of the wages of somebody who works very hard to be redistributed to somebody who just for whatever reason doesn't want to work or doesn't want to apply themselves. I mean that's as I said it's a straw man argument on the right, but there is a sense that that's a little bit unfair. Well, when you look to um, getting away from deriving or redistributing wealth from individual earned income 
and start redistributing it from unearned community-created wealth, then it, it's more just, I think. And it also transcends uh, uh, such varied uh, ideologies as libertarianism uh, right through to anarchism mm. and, and in between. So uh, you can unify both left and right by taking a share of this collective wealth and using it to give us all a, a tax write-off, giving us all uh, zero income taxes. Absolutely. And the economists have great arguments, measurable things that, you know, if you tax someone's labour, then maybe they're going to not work as hard. So uh, we talk about dead weight losses. Economists talk about dead weight loss or marginal excess burden. And well, you know, at the same forum, we were talking about if you want to revolutionise capitalism, capitalism is a deeply unfair system, according to some. So how do you go about revolutionising it to make it more, you know, humane or fair or environmentally just whilst respecting the fact that the market is an incredibly complex system and it's one of the great strengths of uh, liberalism is that markets are built on unconscious cooperation. They're very, very complex systems. So we have pricing mechanisms to manage complexity and allocate value and we actually using the value that's ascribed in the marketplace to location, to natural resources based on competition, based on supply and demand and all of those things that create very efficient resource allocation. And we're maintaining that, but at the same time, we're able to redistribute the, the rents. So we're able to skim the socially created value and the socially created wealth out of the capitalist economy and return it. Very well said, Emily Sims, as we hit the end of our radio interview time. So uh, here's round one. I look forward to delving further into some of your passions of gentrification and uh, primarily... Punk music. And urban planning, all those things in in times to come. That was Emily Sims on the symptoms of success and how any benefits derived by society end up pushing up land prices, pushing up locational advantages, driving the wealth gap, enforcing gentrification upon which the memesters, the narrative kings of the PR agents through the 15, 20 odd think tanks uh, employed to hide the power of rent seeking managed to skewer our own coherent analysis of what is going on. That's why we're here on the Renegade Economist trying to unpack those issues. Look, Emily didn't quite get through her last couple of points, uh, but we talked about them. Her fourth point was returns to land and natural resources and community-created wealth are socially created and therefore belong to society. Well, she said that. And five, uh, earned income belongs to the earner. Hopefully you found that episode of interest. You'll have to check out the show notes to see uh, the show I recorded uh, during my travels on my five tenets of Georgism a nice challenge to try and pick what really matters in in getting a grip on 
a rather simple but somewhat, some say complicated uh, analysis. But once you get your head around Earth rights, it really does become that much easier. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks for joining us. Check out earthsharing.org.au for show notes, prosper.org.au for regular blog posts. And thanks to all those who attended our packed introduction to MMT lecture with Jesse Hermans. The second week is on this coming Monday, so perhaps you can turn up. Get in touch via our website.